0: IndieCast is presented by UpRox's Indie Mixtape. Hello, everyone, and welcome to IndieCast. On this show, we talk about the biggest indie news of the week. We review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode, we'll be taking questions from you, the IndieCast listener. My name is Stephen Hyden,
1: and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Ian Cohen... Ian how are you? Well that really depends on how the the next 5 minutes go of our conversation. Like we have been doing this podcast for what? Like 9 months now. Something that uh yeah, I think our did we start in July of Yeah, uh, August 2020? Some, July yeah. August. Okay, so we're approaching 9 months and I think this is yes. this is the part like this is the juncture of most relationships where you feel like you can come clean about things, where you feel like the the structural integrity of what we have is strong enough to withstand any sort of things that might be a shock to the system. So, oh boy, this is a setup yeah, for something. It, 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 so I'm reading your, you know, your latest uh, eleven thousand word, I believe that's what it was, <laughs> opus on Bob Dylan. Ranking, yes. ranking 39 albums and it was by no means a comprehensive list of Bob Dylan's work that this that excludes bootlegs live albums I guess movie appearances and yeah I'm reading and I'm as I'm reading through this list of 39 studio albums um, all of which you must have listened to numerous times over the course of your lifetime it dawned on me that I don't think I've ever listened to one Bob Dylan album from beginning to end. Really? Not like... Uh... Yeah, I, I can't believe it. Like, I, I, it, I thought to myself, have I really listened to Blonde on... Like, maybe like John Wesley Harding or one of the shorter ones. But, I mean, I've had a Bruce Springsteen phase. I had a Beatles phase. I had a Zeppelin phase. There was even a time where, like, I was trying to work through Neil Young's back catalog. And yet, like... Not one Bob Dylan album from front to back. You know
0: the thing with with Bob Dylan, I think, is that he obviously has this large cultural footprint. Uh, you yeah. know, in, in our world, in the last you know what eighty years, I guess that he's been around. I mean, he's eighty years old. He's been in the public yeah. eye for sixty years. Um, but in a lot of ways, I feel like he's a cult artist. You know, for as much success as he's had, he. Uh, I feel like there's a lot of people that don't like him at all or like you maybe haven't really dug that deep like there's something about him that i think is like a little inaccessible to people even compared to someone like neil young i mean because neil young um i feel like his music is a little more approachable in a way than 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 dylan is so i'm not surprised that you you would say that (laughs) um i mean we all have those things i mean i think last week we were talking about Los
1: Campesinos. I don't think I've ever heard a whole Los
0: Campesinos.
1: Well, record. I appreciate I appreciate that you're putting uh, Los Campesinos on the level of Bob Dylan, which I, <laughs> which is what I would do. I mean, I'm tra- I- I- I'm, I'm, I'm I'm frankly kind of shocked and surprised, and maybe even a little disappointed that you're not like haranguing me for uh, not being like, being a decades deep music critic who is just not familiar with the finer points of Bob Dylan's catalog. I I thought that would be like a disqualifying uh, admission.
0: Maybe I'm just self-conscious about being a middle-aged man, lecturing people (laughs) about listening to Bob Dylan. Like I don't really want to be that guy who's like, you have to listen to Blonde on Blonde to be a serious music critic. Because I don't think that. I would say that it's a wonderful album and I would say you should listen to it just because it's great. But, Again, there's so much music out there uh that I haven't heard or haven't explored that thoroughly. So, I think we all have our blind spots. I it's hard for me to think of like an artist that you have to have heard to write about music professionally. I I, I don't like like who would be, is there anyone that you would say like if you haven't heard every Prince <laughs> album then you shouldn't be writing about music or if you don't know the Beatles you shouldn't listen to music um, I mean this is an issue I mean this is kind of tied. we have a, a question from a listener that is somewhat related to this in a way that we're yes. gonna get to in a moment um, but it is an interesting thing because we do live in a world now where you can hear anything for the most part that you want to hear certainly anything canonical you can hear it if you want um, and it's either, by the way, don't... I
1: think that was, I think that was the first time I've ever heard the word canonical, like spoken aloud. <laughs> I've read that word, like probably dozens, if not hundreds of times in my life. And like one of the, one of the subtle, but unmistakable pleasures of this podcast is that you and I get to, in the midst of hashing out trends, use music critic words that I've never, ever heard spoken aloud. That's so, true. I mean, I'm, yeah, yeah.
0: If, if I. Dropped a canonical reference in yeah. conversation with anyone else with like my like normie friends for
1: lack of a better term. Yeah, I th- I feel like I would just get blank stares. And th- and that is the indiecast audience. The one the like like it's the <laughs> one guy who's still into indiecast. It's the one guy who used wants to use the word ethereal in conversation. If you're that person. IndyCast is for you. We're here every Friday.
0: So you know, since we're talking about canonical bands here, I feel like we, <laughs> we should bring up. Uh, I don't know if this was like the biggest music festival news of the week, but certainly it caught my eye. It was, which was Limp Bizkit getting booked at Lollapalooza, and yes. which that's a thing that I want to talk about. I also want to talk <laughs> about the 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 placement of Limp Bizkit. On the Lollapalooza okay. poster, because it's right before Modest Mouse. And to me, that felt like a very pointed commentary about Gen X priorities, that huh. Limp Bizkit would be placed ahead of Modest Mouse. I think the first Limp Bizkit record, Three dollar Bill, y'all, yes. I think that came out in 97,
1: which is... Uh i'm pretty sure yeah yeah three dollar bill y'all was 97 i think and and
0: significant other was 99 that was the really big one
1: the big one
0: um but uh 97 also the year that the lonesome crowded west came out
1: so you have Uh. (laughs) you have three dollar bill y'all versus the lonesome crowded west six of one half dozen of the other you know
0: but uh yeah i don't know all right of course, when I saw Limp Bizkit on the poster, I immediately thought of Woodstock 99 because I, oh, I, I've yeah. done a lot of work. You know, I did a podcast about Woodstock 99. that's That was on my brain for a long time when I did that. So I, I'm i just wondering if – are we going to ride a Limp Bizkit wave here in, okay. a, in the back so, half of 2021 or what? Wh-
1: when you say that like you were surprised that modest mouse and limp biscuit were on the same line like i would say that's like a bigger deal for modest mouse because like regardless of what you think about limp biscuit as you know a band or as a cultural phenomenon uh significant others sold like at least 16 million copies um like the, i mean is it? Right. and i think that there's Unlike, Although I will say you
0: know, that, like that was in 1999, and that really, was that was the steroid era of of music, steroid era of baseball, <laughs> and steroid <laughs> baseball era of era. yeah, it's just, it's like you could fall out of bed and sell three million copies. Yeah,
1: and that and that's true because I was bought like I don't I didn't have like t- I had like barely ten dollars to my name, and yet I was buying like two CDs every week. But you know, with Limp biscuit, I think that similar to Corn, uh, similar to other bands from that era, you know ones that might have been equally popular, I still think that there is a, I don't know, not a car wreck sort of appeal to them, but, you know, if you were to put, say, Creed, a similarly popular band that's saying spot, it would be like, what the heck's going on here? But, like, you look at who else is on that line of, like, you know, Playboy Cardi or Suicide Boys, like, along the same lines, it's like, you can think of them as sort of, kind of, descendants of Rap Metal. It's very much like piss off your parents, piss off your cool older brother. Um and I guess like spiritually Limp Biscuit absolutely belongs in Lollapalooza. So I mean I'm totally cool with it. Like I don't care like I don't care who else is performing against Limp Biscuit. Like I would probably see that. If only Oh yeah to like Yeah like Me too. only because they you know they they who? What are you gonna get? At a, like, are they gonna do the cover set? Are they gonna do like break stuff fifteen times in a row? Um, yeah, I'm. I'm looking at like the top, the top lines, and it's. I mean, I, I'm seeing Limp Biscuit. You know.
0: Yeah, I, I, the 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 car accident appeal that you mentioned that that's a good point. I would definitely feel like, you know, I could go see this up and coming indie band over yeah. here. Who I like their record, but live, are they that interesting? Probably not. Or can I go see Fred Durst in like his huge, like David Letterman beard that he has now? He yeah. has like a huge white beard. Uh, yeah. Is Wes Borland still in Limp Bizkit or did, did he uh, leave again?
1: I don't know. I think his, like, he's the type of dude who will probably be like, yeah, I'm like, gonna. Like, I will pay my rent or my my mortgage for the next year by doing Lollapalooza. Like, that's been his whole thing from the jump. It's like, I'm a huge Ween Zappa fan, but, like, this pays the bills. He's kind of... And that's, I think, why a lot of people admire him. He, like, kind of uses limp... In the same way that a lot of people kind of use their, like, day job to justify their hobbies. Like, he... Goes out every night and plays the Nookie riff and then goes makes unlistenable solo albums. So, you know, that's kind of living the dream right there.
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess I was just more surprised that they got booked because I feel like a lot of these. You know the the, the front line music festivals. They seem very uh, particular about how they curate their lineups, and there it's does not Lollapalooza, man. This that's true. Like, I guess Coachella is more of a uh, you know yeah. they, they like to fancy themselves as being like a higher caliber, tastemaker. Or a, a tastemaker yeah. type thing. I mean. Seeing Limp Biscuit on that bill, it reminded us it reminded me of that conversation we had, I guess, a week or two ago about like the small town off brand festivals. Like oh, where yeah. you, like I would expect Limp Biscuit to play those where yeah, if I'm drinking
1: Oh, they're playing those too. <laughs> they're playing
0: it's like, yeah, if you're drinking like cheap beer, I guess it wouldn't be cheap beer. It's it's overpriced beer no. <laughs> out of plastic cups for hours and it's now yeah. ten o'clock. It's like hell yeah, now you want to see Limp Biscuit. Like you're in the proper <laughs> Mindset of just hearing a great dumb Limp Biscuit set or a terrible dumb Limp Biscuit set. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that'll be fun. Um, have you been to Lollapalooza
1: ever? I've never been to Lollapalooza, not even in the '90s. Um, you know, but I would see the lineups back in the day and think to myself, "Well, I, I don't know if I could have survived the festival." The only festival I had gone to in my high school years in the '90s was um why what is the y100 uh f- i think it's called the festival and um i may have gotten it wrong but like no doubt played uh cracker played filter played Ooh. um god lives underwater uh, gravity kills i mean like mind you oh 311 also played this was like i would say one of the best days of my life up to that point <laughs> um like i was 16 years old and it like i was um yeah, I was like one of the first people to have a car in my friend group. That yeah, like that that was life life changing. But you, Lollapalooza ne- like I just can't even wrap my head around. I went there
0: uh, you know doing that. I, I didn't go during the glory years in the 90s. I, I I did go to the Chicago iteration that has been going on now for I think like 20 years or something. I I went there a few times in the aughts and it was pretty good. I don't know. That it's in uh, Grant Park in the middle of the uh, city. Um yeah. and it's uh, I don't know. It's like not a great environment. It's like it's better than some festival environment. It's better than Woodstock 99 for instance, which was on a military base. So it's better than that. Not as good yeah. as Coachella. Um yeah. you know, when you were talking about that lineup By the
1: way, I I must point out it is W D R E Fest, not the festival. I've been corrected on this many a time.
0: Okay. Well, you mentioned like Gravity Kills and, and bands like that. It made me think that at some point we need to do an episode on like the Nine Inch Nails. Uh, ripoff bands yeah. of the 90s speaking,
1: speaking of which there was a festival announced in chicago this industrial festival with uh stabbing westward as the headliner along with clipping and front 242 oh man that's a lineup right there yeah like, I was, by I, the way every time i go to chicago for pitchfork festival you see stabbing westward shows like on the on, like in the bathrooms like um, oh yeah like I'm, playing surprisingly big venues
0: <laughs> i was well when I threw out the idea of doing a Nine Inch Nails ripoff episode. Stabbing Westward was like at the top of my brain. They have oh, some like, pretty good songs. Bangers,
1: man. They have some like, corn. What Do I Have to Do? Shame? Save Yourself? It's a good band sure name, too. More... Yeah, great band name.
0: Uh, really good. So yeah, shout out yeah, to Stabbing, Stabbing Westward.
1: Westward. IndieCast approved. <laughs> We're
0: going to do. So we have the Muse second law anniversary episode on the books. Yeah. We have the Stabbing Westward uh, tribute on the book so we've got we've got some good theme episodes coming up uh on this show um but for now in this episode we're going to be doing a mailbag episode we're just answering questions um which is always fun for us i love doing the mailbag segment it's fun to just keep that going and get a bunch of questions in because we get like way more questions than we can answer so it's nice to empty out the mailbag a little bit and by the way if you if you do want to write into us our address is IndieCastMailbag at gmail.com. I should also say quick, I always forget to do this. Um, if you like our show, can you give us some reviews on like Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods? Um, we need more reviews. Getting reviews actually helps the show. Like with our algorithm, it, it tells the platform that people like our show and it can give us better exposure. So... I always mean to ask for this, and I always forget. So, but I'm, I just remembered now. So, if you yeah. could do that, and also like if you write to us, take a screenshot of a review if you if you've left one, and I'll be more likely to pick it for the episode if you've left a comment saying how great we are. Um, a little quid pro quo, I guess, for our listeners here. I'm bribing yes. our listeners with exposure if they give us compliments. Um, let's get to our first question. This one comes from Michael in West Hollywood?
1: Wow, like okay, that is like yeah, I lived in West Hollywood and this is like the opposite of our typical indie mailbag uh participant. So I'm super stoked about this. Shout out to uh the Baby Blues on the corner of uh Selma and Fairfax that it, I used to go to.
0: Yeah, it's like, you know, normally we've got someone from Canada, someone from Pennsylvania, Michigan, but we're getting some West Hollywood people here, which, you know, we're classing up the joint. Um, this is from Michael. Uh, it's about St. Vincent stands, which is a very timely topic. St. Vincent put out Daddy's Home last week, which we reviewed on our show, not favorably. But no one got upset about our episode that I'm aware of. Maybe they did and they just didn't tell us about it. But, uh, yeah. yeah, there was some controversy this week with St. Vincent stands out there. And this is what Michael has to say. St. Vincent has just released the most divisive album of her career. Even some people like myself, who've enjoyed every album up to this point, uh, have struggled to gel with it. Um, I felt Pitchfork's assessment was pretty fair, and perhaps even a bit generous. For those who don't know, Pitchfork gave Daddy's Home a 6.7, which I agree I think is very fair. It's higher than I would have given it. Uh, But, you know, uh, they gave it a 6.7. That's the lowest score I think Pitchfork's given. A St. Vincent album. As far as I know. She's lined up at least, I think, three best new musics. I mean, she's pretty acclaimed by Pitchfork generally. And even that review is like pretty positive, uh, all things considered. I, I thought the assessment was fair, perhaps even a bit generous. That's why I was taken aback when I saw a Twitter thread of screenshots of violent threats toward the organization and personal attacks toward the reviewer, including misgendering. It bursts any remaining theories that only the stan armies of huge pop stars engage in this behavior, which I feel is a problem that many indie listeners like to pretend is not also a problem in our listening culture. We are still emerging from the half-decade of attacks on free press, and something about these remarks, whether jokingly or otherwise, feel hypocritically Trumpian, especially from those who denounced his behavior – Uh, That behavior has infiltrated all aspects of our culture. Many artists, including St. Vincent, owe journalism for their initial exposure and rise. Um, I have disagreed with my share of reviews over the years, but I owe journalistic music articles for my discovery and love of many artists I listen to today. I suppose my first point is that this is not a problem we can ignorantly continue assuming does not also apply to indie fans. Secondly, do you think there's any way to repair this journalist-artist-fan relationship of trust has been fractured in every facet of society. Michael, Whoa. big question here. So he's asking basically, you know, it seems like there's crazy fans out there on social media who go berserk if you don't say that their artist of choice isn't
1: absolutely brilliant and a genius. And he's like, how can we fix this? Um, I don't know if it's something to fix. I mean, it's not like this has happened as long as, uh, you know there's been a relationship between the person creating the art and the person whose art is reviewing the art. Now uh, I can, I can tell you it's been a long time since I've reviewed artists at the level of St. Vincent. But you know, back in my day when I would give say a kid Cuddy album, a bad review, like there was one tool in the toolbox. And that was you at two in the morning, someone from a college email address sends me an email like, saying that like i'm a virgin who lives in my parents basement and because i'm not getting laid i don't understand the weekend's kiss land properly like that was the (laughs) one tool that that was the one tool in the toolbox and you go with that and you know what like you just kind of go through it or like people write a song about you like sonic youth did with robert kriskow or whatever but i think today it's the the reason we have people like michael like at, you know saying this is like a like a huge cultural issue is that i think a lot of it gets tied up with uh, a kind of a moral thing because um like you was saying with like misgendering and um things like that particularly with like saint vincent all, all, also always it's interesting when someone with like a gender kind of neutral name reviews an album and like people don't quite know whether to say like this person's misogynist or whatever like Peyton Thomas was the name of the reviewer with this one. Um, but I think it gets tied up in like moral things like, you know, like the only possible explanation for giving St. Vincent a six, seven is like internalized institutional misogyny. And I think that's something that makes people a little more skittish about like writing about albums and like, how do we repair that? I think honestly, it's not about avoidance, but I think it's like resilience, you know, like you have to kind of understand this is like part of the territory and that if you're a critic, um you know putting yourself out there you kind of know what to expect and yeah to you know steal yourself to it and um and also just to kind of but like i think what he uh, you know what, what michael is alluding to is that it can get to the point where your address is revealed where you like where where there's like some sort of like actual present threat going on and i don't i don't know how to fix that
0: well yeah there you know there's a uh a spectrum of negative responses that a review can get. And by the way, sometimes people get mad if you write a positive review of something yeah. that they don't think is worth getting a positive review of, you know, like that's happened to me, you know, so it doesn't, it, it, sometimes you, you, you can be, uh, you know, people can be mad because you're not mean enough or they're mad at you because you're too mean. Um, I mean, I agree with what you said. I think there's no excuse for abuse there's no excuse for like threatening someone or doxing them or anything like that. But you know, I, I do push back against this idea that this is a recent phenomenon that it is a result of the Trump era. You know, I I I one of the worst reactions I ever got to a review happened 20 years ago when I wrote a, a negative concert review of a corn show in uh, Green Bay, Wisconsin. I got death threats. I people were calling me at my office i uh god i think uh it's like 60 some emails like just just terrible hate mail from people hilarious hate mail i mean i printed it into a book because it was like very funny uh, letters from people but yeah if you if you write a review of a popular artist that's not favorable that's obviously going to upset fans and if you don't expect that as a critic you know, you're you're being a little delusional about that. I mean, of course, people are going to be upset um, about it, and uh, you do have to accept a certain level of negative reaction sometimes if you're going to write something critically, um, and, and and just not take it personally because really, these people they don't know you. You know, they don't actually know anything about you as a writer. They probably don't even read Pitchfork. A lot of these people, or, you know, yeah. they're, they're just <laughs> seeing a score and they're spouting off. on on twitter about it um so yeah i i don't know how else to fix it i mean really the only way that this will stop is if people don't read reviews and they don't care what critics think like that's the only real way that i think that (laughs) you you don't have angry readers and uh i don't think that's a good solution for critics
1: you know just you. Just go back, to, just go back to, you know, not liking St. Vincent in private, you know, like you can go, you can just do that or, um, you yeah, just like kind of, just kind of roll with it um, or just not review it at all. Like, I think that would be like, there, at, at, particularly after St. Vincent was announced as like one of the headliners for Pitchfork Festival, there was like this kind of rumbling of like, uh, when are they going to review this? I think it would be actually funnier if they didn't review it at all. Like... I don't think that would be possible, but just to like, yeah, you know, no, no one wants to jump on that bullet. Yeah. We're yeah. just going to, we're just going to kind of let our silence speak for it. And just, yeah.
0: As far as like, you know, this also existing in indie culture. I mean, can you think of instances like where indie fans got mad at you over uh, a review?
1: Yeah. N- none, none, no, never. Not <laughs> my, not my, not my 14 years of writing has any indie fan found issue with anything I've ever written ever um no I I don't know it's been a long time like because the the stuff that one of the things that like really gets underplayed as far as like the stand culture um conversation is that uh, this hasn't happened so much to me but I know people who have given similar scores like to bands that like I can't even like I don't even remember their names like something like T-Rex to see, that's a, that's a band. And, um, they got like shit on by not, but it, it was a small, but very passionate number of people who thought it was, um, you know, just awful, like, and also institutionalized misogyny or whatever. This band got like a six, seven or what have you. And, Um, it's like people who are like very vocal about a small band that can also make your life a real pain in the ass. So that's
0: a good point because yeah, people that anyone that feels invested in a band, you know, that fan base can be weaponized against writers and it's, yeah, and it's not always big fan bases because sometimes for smaller bands, the people who are into it are even more committed than they would be if it was like Arcade Fire or something. I was going to say, do you remember this band called Reading Rainbow?
1: yes of course i, I remember reading Ray right? dude i'm like
0: <laughs> i reviewed their second i I remember really liking their first record and then i reviewed their second record and it, uh, i didn't really get into it I actually wrote about it for pitchfork i think it got uh. like a 6.0 or something and i saw someone made a comment where they're like i'm gonna fill a sock full of quarters and hit you in the face with this like over a reading rainbow review so uh which i just thought was funny because it, it was such a specific form of violence against yeah. me. It wasn't just like, I'm going to beat you up. I'm going to like take a sock and fill it full of quarters and hit you in the face. Uh, that didn't actually happen. And and really, yeah. like, I <laughs> mean, like, most of these threats that get made, I mean, actually, all of these threats are usually BS. I mean, that's another thing to remember about this. I can't think of an instance where someone actually, like, followed through on you know not to say that it shouldn't be taken seriously or that it's not upsetting i mean it's very upsetting to get threats and all that sort of stuff but i mean these are people who are just angry and spouting off and you know this is like an angry world i think sometimes people just feel like any way they can get their anxiety out they're gonna take it and i guess if this is how they do it it's relatively harmless so i don't know but at any rate Shout out to yeah. uh, Peyton Thomas for uh, the St. Vincent review in Pitchfork. Yeah. Uh,
1: Although I gotta say, man, I, I, I'm mad about that review too, but only because Pitchfork implied that it is a higher quality album than Turnover's dream pop emo masterpiece Peripheral Vision by Point .01. I'm mad. Let's let's put that on the record. <laughs> it's, it's
0: better by 1.6 points. Yeah. All right, let's move on to our next question here. This is about Smashing Pumpkins.
1: Oh, sweet. Here
0: we go. This is from Steven in uh, Tacoma, Washington. Eh, he said,
1: quite indie cast territory, but close. I think okay. that's
0: that's a new... T- we're planting a flag in Tacoma. I don't think yeah, we've been to... Yeah, West the, Coast. We haven't been to... The, yeah, two West Coasties so far. Hello, Stephen and Ian. I'm a long-time listener, first-time question asker. The question is simple. I have gone my entire life without listening to Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. Should I listen to it now? Obviously, I've heard 1979. It's hard to avoid. But my virgin ears have yet to hear the rest of the album. So should I keep waiting for the perfect moment or listen to it now? P.S. My best friend and I have been reading Ian Cohen's review since we were 15. I remember reading a review of Japan Droids post-nothing and how much that excited us at the time. Your work has meant a lot to us and we still read it to this day. And Steve, you seem like a nice guy too. <laughs> Keep up right. the good work. Uh, Steven from Tacoma, Washington. You know, actually, I think we should skip this question now. Uh, this guy yeah. was way too nice to you. Uh, yeah, I, maybe we'll just move on. No, okay. So he's asking, should he listen to melancholy and the infinite sadness? I'm going to guess that that's a yes from both of us
1: on that. Uh, I mean, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. For I mean, because I mean, it seems to be directing uh, the question to me, but I'm curious, like, what? I don't know if we've ever really had a substantial pumpkins discussion. Well, on here, so I'm curious what you think about this.
0: Well, I mean. Look, I think it's a great record. I would say that Siamese Dream is the best Smashing Pumpkins record, but you know, this is might be 1B to like 1A for Siamese Dream. It's definitely the prime of Smashing Pumpkins' career, like that 93 to 96 run uh, that they were on. But I actually had a different thought on this question where, because it made me think about how when I was a kid in the 90s and I'd be reading about you know, canonical albums. I'm saying canonical again. This is the canonical episode. I would read about them in in, uh, music books, you know, read about the Velvet Underground or the Stooges or something. And a lot of times, I wouldn't actually hear that music for maybe like a year or two afterward because like those records weren't accessible in my town. And, you know, a lot of times it was just going to like a UCD store and just having to sort of accidentally come across like fun house or white light white heat. And then it's like, Oh, I finally get to listen to this. And a lot of times I found that because I had imagined it for so long that I was initially underwhelmed by a lot of these classic albums because they had been <laughs> built up so much yeah. in my mind. But it just made me think about how like now, obviously we can hear anything for the most part that we want to hear. And right. I find that it's like fairly common among younger people and this this ties back i guess to our bob dylan conversation that like sometimes people choose not to listen to canonical stuff like you can actually decide now that like i'm not ready to hear melancholy in the the infinite sadness i'm gonna wait until some perfect moment um instead of just saying like well whatever i'll just scan through it right now it'll take i can i don't have to hear the whole thing i can just kind of dabble in it for 20 minutes and and then move on um I don't know, I'm just fascinated by that idea, you know, that there's these huge albums that you're already curious about, but, you know, people, I think, are much more sort of deliberate about not hearing things sometimes. Yeah. It, in a way that I couldn't have imagined when I was a teenager, you know, growing up in a pre-internet world, where I would have been like, wow, you can go to a box and just hear every Velvet Underground album? I don't have to, like, wait for yeah. months and, and search trying to find like a copy of a Velvet Underground CD. I mean that that kind of blows my mind there. So, anyway, that's kind of a tangent away from this question, but it's an issue in the background of it that I I find really interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean, for first off, I got to say like if I I can't imagine what it would be like to hear um post nothing when you're 15 like if post nothing came out when i was 15 i might be dead right now like i think with japan droids i've been able to appreciate it as kind of like as intended as um, like a nostalgic sort of like where of all the good times gone sort of thing but like if i saw that as like aspirational like we're gonna go out tonight and like get you know post nothing slash celebration level drunk and also i wonder if i like how much more insufferable i'd be if like You know, I was reading pitchfork (laughs) reviews at 15. I was already bad enough when, like, all I had was, like, Rolling Stone and spin to internalize. But anyway, I appreciate that. Um, Also, it's funny, I went back and read that review and I compared them to, like, the Get Up Kids. So that was, that's kind of a win back in 2009. But as far as, like, the perfect time to listen to Melancholy Infinite Sadness, I mean, that album actually came out when I was 15. So, um, You know, like, I don't know if you can recreate, you know, being on a school bus to the Jewish youth group meetup in Pittsburgh or, you know, just being alone in your room, like being grounded. So you're not going to get that. But it it brings up a point about, like, the best time to experience Smashing Pumpkins. Like, I, I recall, like, when we were voting on the best tracks of the 90s list for Pitchfork back in 2009, I got to see... Like how five years of difference just created this insurmountable generation gap, particularly with like alt rock stuff, uh, like the discussions about, say, Interstate, Love Song or Alice in Chains. And, and I think Smashing Pumpkins were kind of included in that as well, because if I were like in my 20s and from an indie rock perspective when Melancholy came out, probably would have hated the Smashing Pumpkins because they, they were against everything indie rock stood for at that time. Uh, they had beef with Steve Albini, uh, Sonic Youth, Pavement, uh, Courtney Love. I mean, like, how much more anti-indie rock could you possibly be? Well, and it was um, so
0: grandiose, too. I mean, it was definitely, yeah. like, aspiring to be, you know, it like, it emulated, like, the great, you know, monstrosities of, like, classic rock in the 70s. You know, like, the, yeah. the big double albums uh, where you just get lost in it and it has very grandiose cover art, and, which... I loved, of course. I mean, that was way up my alley.
1: And uh, And even compared to like Pearl Jam or like a lot of the, or REM at the time, bands that were like trying to scale back and like um, reconsider their relationship with fame, Smashing Pumpkins were like, fuck this. We want to be Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd at the same time. And I mean, I think with this album, you can, it's a little more fan service y than Siamese Dream and Adore, which I think come from a more personal perspective. So, if, if if you can kind of accept that with songs like, say, Bullet With Butterfly Wings and Zero, which kind of poured on a little thick as far as the teen angst goes, I think you can just appreciate it on a sheer they-don't-make-them-like-this-anymore sort of level. Um, it, it's, I mean, it's it's similar to, like, listening to The Wall because I think in the past couple – you know, in the past, I don't know, 30, 40 years, The Wall has really been um, – you know, reconsidered for its, let's say, problematic elements (laughs) or how it appears to, like, the kind of sheltered teen. And I think Melancholy does that in a way as well. But in contrast to the Walt, like, the songs are just awesome. There's, like, all the singles are incredible. And there's, like, twice as many singles that could have been singles. as Like, Billy Corgan was on such a hot streak at that time that, like, even the box sets of B-sides were incredible. Like, I think... Yeah, and
0: I think too the thing you were talking about before about the indie scene politics and how that complicated how a lot of people heard Smashing Pumpkins, you know that stuff all goes away over the course of time, and the I think that sort of context, it's not really there if you are a younger person just coming to the album now. I mean that seems like such a uh, like a lot of that indie stuff and. you know, you know, and people looking at Smashing Pumpkins as being sellouts and, you know, not authentic and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's it, it's so far past its expiration date at this point, where in a way, maybe someone who hears it now can appreciate it on a more pure level, you know, because there's not all this baggage yeah. attached to True. it. But uh, I'd say, you know. Listen to listen to Melancholy, Ian. Listen to Blonde on Blonde. You know this music's all there. If you got like you know an hour to spare, slap
1: it on. Give it a shot. You know, like what do you got to lose? It's there. You listen to us talking for like an hour. You can listen to like Billy Corgan at the peak of his powers. (laughs) Exactly. Put
0: it on. Let us know. Write us back. Let us know what you think. But no more compliments for Ian. We got to keep Ian humble here. So no more people writing Ian telling them that they read his reviews. When they were fifteen. All kidding aside, that's awesome. That's <laughs> nice to hear, isn't it?
1: It is. It's kind of nice to hear. Shaping minds. I, I, that's scary to me because that whenever I go to like Pitchfork Festival and see like fifteen year olds or like teenagers, I think like, are they ever gonna like uncool music? Like, are they ever gonna have that point where they their mind is shaped by like really terror Like, where are they going to experience like what Bush or what have you, like, or Stabbing Westward were uh, for us, you know? It's like, I think you need a little bit of time to, like, I don't know, be kind of brainwashed by uh, monoculture.
0: I don't know. It feels a little different, though, now in terms of the stratification between cool and uncool music because, like, how uncool music would have been defined when we were younger, that's totally out the window, you know? Like, if, if this were the 90s, And yet, someone like Taylor Swift, this enormous superstar, like indie people would have just scoffed at her. Whereas now she's like a huge indie person as well as a huge pop star. So I don't know how you define uncool music now. It's
1: probably all the it's probably all those bands in the middle of the Lollapalooza poster that I've never heard of. Right? Like I I think we're just we're like due for a huge reassessment of like I don't know Milky Chance or like. (laughs) (laughs) that's a real band i heard them yesterday at work
0: yeah there's bands like that and then yeah there's bands that actually do really well on their own the headline you know yeah glass glass animals glass Glass animals Animals.
1: that's the one i'm trying to think of that
0: jam band that played at uh, madison square garden that is sort of an indie band Their name is escaping me at the moment. Do you have any idea what I'm talking about?
1: Steve, if you don't know this, I (laughs) damn well am not going to know this either.
0: All right, let's move on. We have time for one more question. We actually had two more that we were going to do, but I think we only have time for one more. So the last one, we'll we'll bump to our next episode. Uh, But this is a question. uh, This comes from Wes in Milwaukee. Here we go.
1: Oh, there we go. There's some good (laughs) indie
0: cast. Get out of the West Coast now. We're going to the heart of America, the heartland of Wisconsin. Uh, with Wes in Milwaukee, thank you for writing in. He's writing in about favorite underdog bands. Uh, hey Stephen Ian, love the show. Calling Ian's bluff from last episode to do an entire episode on Los Campesinos. Yes, another Los Campesinos reference. Los Camps, is that is that a thing? Do people call them Los Camps or is this?
1: LC, yeah, that Los Camps, LC, LC. Whatever, whatever it is. As long as people are talking about them, that's cool with me.
0: Lots of Los Camps. References on Indiecast lately. I really do need to listen to more of this band. Um, oh yeah, are also one of my favorite bands of the deck of the last decade. An example of a phenomenon I'd like to hear you guys discuss. A band that consistently receives critical acclaim but are never really mentioned when talking about the greats. But as a listener of uh, of this band, I feel the underappreciation pushes us fans into a cult like devotion, which I think as a band would actually be more fulfilling, while less rewarding monetarily than breaking big. Another one of my favorite bands, who currently I feel is more of a recent example, is Pile. I think I've tweeted about Pile. Pile's pretty yeah. good band. They're from Boston, yeah. right?
1: Are they Boston? They're from Boston. Yeah, fucking killer live band.
0: Uh, would love to hear who your favorite beloved underdog bands are, and also how would you feel if these bands finally broke big? If it would somehow ruin the magic at all? Again, many thanks for a great show, Wes from Milwaukee. Um, so. This is an interesting question. I have some thoughts on this, but I'm curious since you are a Los Camps fan, how you feel about Wes's assessment here, and and what are your favorite like underdogs out there?
1: Okay, can I just say that like Wes from Milwaukee asking what our favorite underdog bands in is might be the most indie cast mailbag question of indie bag mailbag questions like this is It's almost
0: self-parody. Perfection. It's like self-parody yeah, it is, really. it
1: it is perfection of form. Like I just want to put I want to like post and frame this one and people ask us like what is indie cast about? This is it. So wes um yeah, I th- I think wes makes a very good distinction here because We talk a lot about – like it's one of our favorite subjects, like what bands are like underrated or overlooked. And I think there isn't a lot of times in these discussions scrutiny on like what it actually means to be underrated or underappreciated or maybe does it mean that you're properly appreciated by a smaller number of people than you'd like. Because with Los Campesinos, it's like they – they are, like, a perfect band to me. I think that, lyrically, they talk about, like, you know, soccer and food and, you know, they write about, like, sex in a way that's not cringe, which makes them, like, extremely rare for an indie band. And if, like, they kind of played up the UK aspect, they're they're a band from Wales. Like, if if Gareth was just, like, straight up talking over, like, angular post-punk, they might be, I don't know, amongst those bands like Squid or Black Country New Road. But instead... Uh, They funnel this lyricism through very anthemic, uh, quasi-emo. They call themselves the UK's first and only emo band on Twitter. They are constantly stumping for bands I like. Um, But, you know, if, if they were bigger, if they were more popular, I don't know if that would really work for them. Because I think the cultish devotion to them, like being... Uh, you know, the, their genius pages with lyric annotations is just off the chain. Oftentimes it's like from Garrett himself. Um, and I think that really kind of helps a band like that. Pile as well. The thing about them that you always hear is that their records are good, but it cannot compare to their live show. And I think that's true. Um, I don't think, I, I think those bands are properly appreciated by a, by the correct number of people for their sake. I wish they were more, you know, economically uh recompense for that but but you know, they're but they're a, about
0: as big as you could expect yeah, a band of that kind to be i mean exactly they're, they're not doing things where you're like wow this could be on the radio or on like the you know the the, the big pop spotify playlist or whatever i mean they're making right they're making the kind of music that like yeah only a certain number of people like and mm. they're like at the top really of yeah. of, of of that pyramid i mean The thing about, you know, underrated, underappreciated, the fact is is that like 99.9% of bands (laughs) are underappreciated because you've never heard of them, they never get reviewed, they're not successful, and, you know, they might be great, but like no one cares about them. And and, and in the case of Los Camps, a band that gets like 8.0s from Pitchfork, I know they're not getting the best new music, but like, to me that's like pretty damn appreciated I would say and because like I know I know artists who never get reviewed at all Yeah, they've
1: succeeded like 99.9 percent of bands but as far as like the bands that I want to see like I that I think would benefit from like more people kind of changing their perspective on them it's like it all I almost feel guilty about bringing up a band like Foxing who is like enormously successful by most metrics but I think that like when I see them live and when I hear their rec like I just feel as if if they were to scale up and play like, like Coachella, for example, I think they would kill it. Like that's the thing. I think that they've uh, reached a point where they can tackle any sort of um, you know big stage they were put on, and I think that they are kind of just cornered as like oh this emo band or whatever same with like the world is i mean i think but even
0: like fox like near my god was like pretty well reviewed Was pretty like like widely covered but,
1: (laughs) but 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 i want to see them like you you know how like there's those indie bands on like the one or two or three indie bands like per year that get like put on every festival like the japanese breakfast spot I want to – like, I think that – by the way, they and Japanese Breakfast put out a split together in 2011 or something like that. Um, But, yeah, I want – I think that they would belong in that spot and they would crush it. That's the thing. It's like if Pyle and Los Campesinos were elevated to a much bigger platform, I don't know if that would really suit them. But – yeah, I think with, like, a band like Foxing or, the, like, the world is, I think they should have been, like, Wolf Parade or Broken Social Scene for a minute. But. Which
0: is funny because, like, a lot of people would probably say that Wolf Parade is underrated, you know, because they weren't no, U2 or something. You know, I mean, there's yeah, always point. there's always different, I guess, definitions of success. and And True. it really is in the eye of the beholder, I guess. Because it really is, to go back to what you were saying, it's not really about being underrated. It's about feeling, as a listener, that, like, well, not enough people like this. You know even though a lot of people might like it right now it, it's still not at a proper level of recognition and whatever that is in my mind and it's sort of like a mm. it's a hard thing to define I mean for me like the first band, that I thought of in terms of like contemporary music was was IndieCast favorite Wild Pink, which is a <laughs> band that we've talked about a lot. Yeah. And they've been pretty well reviewed. I know like Vulture did like a big piece on them saying it was like one of the best indie rock records of the year so far. They called the
1: best rock record of the, the best year. best rock and record. Were, and they were correct. But it's so, neither here nor there.
0: You know, so I guess by my own definition, they're not underrated because they have been covered uh by by you know big publications uh they're not hugely popular. I feel like there's a lot of people out there, a lot of our listeners even who I think would really like that band if they gave them a shot because they're they hit a lot of the buttons that we talk about on the show of things that we um are into uh so they're a band I'd push for I mean to me like historically speaking like, the go-to answer for this, for me, and I think a lot of people, is, like, Sloan. Like, a band like that. Oh, yeah. From Canada. Canadian Power Pop. I mean, like, is is that...
1: I mean, I feel like... I think that's, like, designed to be, like, underappreciated. Like, that's Power Pop's whole thing. Right, exactly. like, oh, these guys could be enormous. Right. That was Fountains of Wayne's thing. Or it goes back to
0: Big Star. It goes back to Big Star. Like, you know, the original Power Pop band where people are like, oh, why wasn't Big Star more famous? They were so good. Or, you know, the replacements have that. I mean, yeah, there's so many bands of that ilk. But, um, and you look at their music and you're like, oh, it's so catchy and melodic. Why wouldn't people like this? But then... You know, kind of going back to to what you were saying about like a lot of punk and emo stuff is that there does seem to be something embedded in these bands where even if they're not conscious of it, it seems like, well, we're not really pushing to be huge. Like if yeah. if we were, we'd be a different kind of band, you know, like yeah. like like no one, I, th- I feel like at this point, like is anyone forming an emo band or a power pop band thinking, yeah, we're going to be as big as Beyonce with this kind <laughs> of music, well, you know, like no, no one thinks I that. Mean, it-
1: Well, I think that you have – we completely missed on the Tramp Stamps controversy about the supposed industry plant pop punk band. This was – god, this feels like ages ago except it was like a month ago. uh, That was like formed I think by Dr. Luke. I don't even want to begin to get on that because like that was was just like one uh, very inside baseball controversy where I just had to view it from a distance. I mean it does happen but – yeah, it's. I think if you're starting a band like we were saying last week with a with a name like Ogbert the Nerd, I think you put a you shout to them by the way they rule. But like you put kind of a ceiling on your uh you know popularity and
0: and you know there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, nope. as our listener suggested, I think that there is something really nice about uh, just having like a really good fan base that is into you that. Um, I think when fan bases are smaller, they tend to be uh, kinder and smarter than like really big fan bases. I don't know. I guess I'm contradicting yeah. our previous conversation in the Saint Vincent thing, but we
1: can we contain multitudes.
0: Yeah, maybe that's not true. I don't know. I'm, I, <laughs> but I, I do think that there is a phenomenon a lot of times with bands where maybe you get bigger than you really want it to be, and people end up at your shows that you like. Aren't totally comfortable being there. I mean, that was the yeah. big thing about a lot of 90s bands. I mean, Kurt Cobain talked about that with Nirvana, that he would look in the audience and it was like full of frat dudes who, like but, the kind yeah. of people that used to beat him up. And, you know, maybe that's not cool. You know, even, in, even, even though you are successful. Even Titus
1: Andronicus, like, they would you know, there would be people who would even a band at that level, they would say that there were people who just like kind of misunderstood the entire point of the monitor, you know.
0: Yeah, so I could see, you know, as much as you want to get your music out there, and you want to be financially viable, or even rich, you know, even beyond just being viable, but having like a lot of money. Uh, yeah, I think there is some, something to be said about just having like a nice-sized fan base that's cool, that you know is with you, and uh, is just going to be supportive of what you do. So yeah, it does seem like a band like Los Campesinos, or any number of bands at that level, seems like they're doing pretty well. We've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that
1: we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? All right. So this this band I'm going to talk about is kind of the West from Milwaukee of music. Um, <laughs> like this one is so this one's like designed in a lab for IndieCast. Um, it's a band called National Park Service. It's stylized as N A T L uh, Park, spelled as is S R V C. Um, and they are a. I mean, let's just list it off. A seven-piece band from Minneapolis. Oh man, they describe they describe themselves on their uh, Twitter feed as a sixth-wave emo <laughs> supergroup, which. Uh, but they all kind of they dress uh, they 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 all wear like the same kind of uh, suit, and they play a style of music that I would describe as like big tent aughts, like I hear some Arcade Fire in their music. I hear Los Campesinos. I hear also a lot of Ra-Ra Riot, a little bit of Gaslight Anthem, like very much oh, like man. Tree of Bruce. Um, and they put out their debut album called The Dance, uh, I believe, last weekend. And similar to Manchester Orchestra's a Black Mile of the Surface, All the most of the songs have like The in the title, like The Dance, The Garage. Is that a Garth um, Brooks reference, by the way? I uh, I don't I, think, we uh gotta get, let's get him on
0: the pod. We got to get him on the pod. Yeah. Mask. I don't
1: think, I don't think Garth Brooks has like, uh, you know, I don't think he has like a monopoly on that, but, um, you know, the sharks, the deadline and, you know, this band, it's like people, would. it, it kind of plays along with the last question about like, you know, if, 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 if indie rock was what it was in the late 2000s, this band would be huge. And it's like, I don't know about that because maybe they'd get like lost in the mix amongst the bigger bands that we've asked, asked, talked about already. But in 2021, it's more of like a, wow, they still make you type of thing, which is not to like denigrate their craft. I think it's a very good album. Um, one that has like this epic sweep to it. Um, and a lot of like, you know, horns and strings and, it just thinks really, really, really big. Like I think they're really swinging for the fences in a way that a lot of bands uh, don't. And yeah, it's a little bit nostalgic. Maybe they make another record where they like completely master it. But I think for if you listen to IndyCast, cast, like there's like no way you're not going to be into this record. So yeah, national National Park Service, the dance.
0: I was gonna say you were talking about industry plants before. This is like an indie cast plant. Yeah, uh, I in know. The, in the, in the, <laughs> the music business. Uh Yeah, that's a cool record. Also, shout out to a Minneapolis band. Love to support the local music. Local for me, anyway. So, that's awesome yeah. to hear. Uh, I want to talk about a record called Afrique Victime by a 35-year-old Nigerian guitarist called Emdu Mokdar. Uh, he, this album is out today, and I would say that if you are into guitar solos... This is the guitar solo album of the first half of uh, of 2021. Um Makdar, he's been around for a while, but he's really, I think, come into the consciousness of like American rock listeners. Uh in yeah. the past couple of years, he put out a record in 2019 called Elana the Creator, uh, which is part of that desert blue scene that includes bands like Tenorwin and there's also this great guitar player named Bombino. And it's oh, basically yeah. just like dudes in Africa playing rock music that sounds like a cross of like ZZ top and like upbeat <laughs> African music, you know, just real kind of drony, awesome sounding guitars, uh, and, and just, like, great rhythms, very energetic behind it. You might have heard M.D. Mokdar on the recent uh, Matt Sweeney and Bonnie Prince Billy album, Super Wolves. Uh, mm-hmm. He and his band appear on three tracks. And you instantly know when Mokdar is yeah. on the scene with those guys because it's, like, way more upbeat than the west than the rest of the record. He's, like, a shot of adrenaline on yeah, that, album. that album. But uh, the new record, which, again, is called Afrique Victim, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh I think it's even better than Alana the Creator. It's such yeah. a great record. It's like one of those records where there'll be vocals for about two minutes and then there'll be like a three-minute guitar solo after that. <laughs> and you know, he's talked about how some of his influences include like Jimi Hendrix, Eddie Van yeah. Halen. Uh, you know, he's, he's influenced by a bunch of Western guitarists. And you can hear that in his playing because he does bend notes, he blurs notes. A lot of these guitar solos... They pick up intensity as they go along and at some point it it turns into this like incredible like squall of noise that's super exhilarating to hear against that great energetic rhythm section. So I know that there's people out there that love guitar solos, just like I like guitar solos. You got to hear this record. It's going to give you what you want at a time where you don't really hear a lot of guitar solos on on rock records. Uh, So Thank you, M. Mokdar, for bringing the guitar solo back. I appreciate that. I also wrote about this record. It's my review's out today, so if you want to check that out on our box. I ask you a
1: question though, since you like you seem to be much more, you know, in tune with the kind of this style of music. Like we usually hear, like you know, the 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 people who stand above, uh, you know, like the like the like a guy like this. But like, is there like a when you listen to this style of music, is there like a Nigerian Nickelback? Like, is there like a version of this music where it's just like, yo, this is where it's like, I don't know, like Igwe Malmstein or like just or like Blues Hammer type stuff? Because like, that's a good question. Stuff-
0: I mean, really, Mokdar might be the Nickelback because he's so successful. Oh. Like, there yeah, might that's be a thing. there might be like a hipper version of him, uh, you know, just gigging around North Africa that like the heads in Africa are into, and they're like, oh, this this dude who's popular in America. That sucks. I mean, I don't know if that's true. I suspect yeah. it's probably not. I think he's pretty no. beloved in his home country too. But um, that's a good question that we'll have to tackle on a future episode, trying to find the African Nickelback.
1: He's like, I listen to him like, yeah, I know this sounds awesome. But like, I also wonder like, you know it, it's like yeah like are like who are like the tuareg musicians who are just like man this is mad corny you know <laughs> totally derivative i know no that's I a great question i I, yeah.
0: I can't say that i know that scene well enough to yeah. uh, you know expound on that
1: yeah cuz you usually you usually only hear about the superstars you know it's
0: kind of like the johnny be good mythology like he had to build his first guitar out of <laughs> like he had to, like find the wood and like Uh, I think he took, like, wires from a bicycle and used that for the guitar. So, you know, when you have dudes like that, like, I'm guessing that there's, like, not a ton of people out there playing this kind of music. So I don't know. But that'll be a fun thing to look at in a future episode. Um, Well, we've now reached the end of our uh, episode here uh, on ATCast, but thank you so much for listening. We'll be back with more news reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box.